everybody, Pastor Josh Blevins here, and thank you for joining me for this episode of The Shepherd's Voice, where we seek to point people to the voice of Jesus amid the chaotic noise of the culture. And I'm really excited for today's episode. I was joined with a special guest, Elisa Childers. Some of you guys who maybe grew up in the 90s Christian scene, you might remember her from uh, her performance uh, as a musician in Zoe Girl, but she has really become a, a very profound author, apologetic speaker. She really deals with issues that are facing the church today, specifically surrounding this idea of progressive Christianity and postmodern culture. And that's what her and I got to talk about on this special episode. And so I really hope you guys enjoy it. Make sure you share it with a friend and subscribe to the channel. And uh, let's get right to the interview. Well, Elisa, uh, it's so great to have you with us uh, today, and um, really thrilled by your ministry. I think you have such an important voice, especially in the day and age we live where there's a cultural attack on, on Christianity. It's coming from within and without of the church. Uh, there's probably more opportunities for people to be confused oh, yeah. now more than ever. So your voice of clarity has been really appreciated, I know, for me personally and from so many in our church and all around the world, I'm, I'm sure. So thank you for being here today. Oh, man, this is my pleasure. Well, I want to dive right into uh, your, your heart. You have really struck a chord in really defending the faith, bringing biblical clarity to people. Tell, tell me a little bit about why this battle for the the faithfulness of the gospel, mm. the truth of God's word has struck such a chord in your own life and has become really a, a, a timely mission for you. Yeah, well, I appreciate you putting it that way because I think if it's striking a chord for others, it's because it, it did for me first. I, I went through a really substantial crisis of faith about 10 years ago after being a lifelong Christian. I loved Jesus as far back as I can remember and was always very involved in ministry my whole life and never doubted at all. I never had any, at least intellectual doubts that it was true. I knew that it was true. Um, and so really it wouldn't be till I was an adult, married with, a, with kids, and uh, my husband and I were attending a church just right in the middle of the Bible Belt in Tennessee where we live, and we loved it. We loved the pastor, we loved the people. And I really respected this pastor. You know, I, we'd been there about eight months, and his sermons were so deep and rich, so much scripture. And he just really took an interest in our lives. And it was just, this was so great, right? And so about eight months in to our attending this church, the pastor pulled me aside and invited me to a, a small inner circle study and discussion group is how he described it. And he said, it's going to be like seminary. So you go through this class, you'll come out on the other side. That's great. <laughs> yeah, with a seminary level education. And that sounded so exciting to me. And so, um, but it was in the first class that he revealed to us that he was actually agnostic. And this really, of course, surprised me. I had all sorts of red flags, but I didn't want to be judgmental. So I thought, well, you know, maybe he just needs support and wants us to pray for him. And, and so I tried to just keep an open mind. But during about, you know, the four months or so that I lasted in the class, everything that I'd ever held precious and dear, these beliefs about Jesus and God and the Bible, they were picked apart, explained away, deconstructed. And... It wasn't until we left the church and I left the class that I was kind of isolated and alone with my thoughts. And all of those doubts took root in my own heart and really propelled me into a faith crisis that 
led me to really be unsure whether or not Christianity was true, if Jesus really was who he said he was, or any of the claims, right? And I cried out to God one night, and in his faithfulness, he led me to study apologetics and all the things, all the questions that I had over the course of about five years, six years maybe, I just investigated and I studied. And I'm so thankful to the Lord for that because I just needed answers for some of these skeptical claims that were brought up in this class. But the key point, I think, in this discussion is that people might be wondering, like, this was a church, right? There's a pastor that was teaching all this skeptical stuff. And... Uh, this was back in about 2008 or 9, 10, somewhere in there. And this was before progressive Christianity had become the thing it is now. This was kind of back at the tail end of the emergent church, you yeah. know, guys like Rob Bell, Brian yeah. McLaren. And so the church, you know, I went on this journey and then the church seemed to be going on a different journey. And about five or six years, about, about when my faith was settled again, mm. they rebranded themselves. So they took the Nicene Creed down from their website. They wrote their own creed, emphasizing the power of personal conscience. They became LGBTQ inclusive. Mm. And they said, we are now a progressive Christian community. Yeah. And it wasn't really a shock because I saw it coming at that point. But that's when I think, you know, that, and then it was happening in churches all over. There was a church in Seattle and it just started exploding everywhere. I think this, this new phrase, yes. progressive Christianity. Yeah. Uh, and, and isn't it amazing the way, even, even as you describe your own story, which is probably many people's story, even more so today, yeah. um, than even, even back then when you were going through it, you really see this almost systematic approach that goes all the way back to the garden of Eden yeah. where where deconstruction, that term that's floating around today, was was Satan's idea from the beginning. Yes, <laughs> to yeah. deconstruct someone's perception of God and what God wanted and God's boundaries and, and God's heart um, to to create a God of, of self, um, of becoming like God. And so we've seen this battle. Paul told the Galatians, I'm so... Um, amazed that you would so quickly be moved away from the gospel. And then he said, if, if even we or an angel from heaven preaches another gospel, let him be a curse. So he includes himself in that statement as almost trying to tell us, like he told the Ephesian elders, there's going to be from among you yeah. wolves that rise up. You know, um, and, and it's sometimes so subtle at the beginning, like you said, those ideas that are planted. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the attraction mm -hmm. for people when they when they hear these new ideas and, mm -hmm. and it comes in the name of the gospel and yeah. it's wrapped up in this this godlike appearance? Mm -hmm. What is the attraction there and where are people going off course? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And I I can only speak for myself and I can speculate, I think. But I do think that for me, I think one of the reasons I was vulnerable, now I, I did not buy into progressive Christianity, but I was attracted to the people mm. because I was a touring musician. I had been to a lot of different churches and kind of seen the good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah. And so I think that there are legitimate criticisms of, say, evangelical culture that some of the progressives brought in, um, some of the hypocrisy, perhaps. Or, um, you know, I think even looking back over the past, 50 years of church history, we've seen the rise of the seeker-sensitive model and the, the prosperity gospel has kind of, you know, gained steam and then also the seeker-sensitive movement. So there's been a lot of, and, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a large church, but the models that are less focused on discipleship and more focused on numbers and things, there have been churches admittedly that have done that, where they're just trying to grow the church and, and, and seek out numbers. And there've been a lot of people really hurt by that mm. because they're not being discipled, they're not being cared for, they're not being, you know, their questions aren't being taken seriously. 
seriously. So I think there's some maybe legitimate critiques that people have. And so then the progressive message comes in and gives all the space in the world to explore that. Plus some added like, yeah, they're terrible. You know, like they yeah. kind of jump on the bandwagon there. Um, and so I think that might be one thing. We've seen a lot of spiritual abuse. I think that's another mm. thing that makes people vulnerable is uh, abuses of power, cult of celebrity kind of stuff. And um, But I think even more than that, when people wrestle with doubts, um, not being given space maybe to come to a conclusion on their own. Um, I know that's something I really struggled with when I was in my crisis. I wanted to believe. I, want, I always found the gospel beautiful. I know that's not the case with everybody, but I always found the gospel beautiful. I wanted it to be true, but I needed some time. I needed some space to be able to say, okay, look, I know this is what you've taught me, but I need to know for myself that it's true. And so maybe if people feel a little suffocated in more conservative spaces, it can, it can draw them to those places where there's endless space mm. for you to never land. On anything, which is an opposite extreme, of yeah. course. But um, but then there's also good old-fashioned rebellion. People just don't <laughs> like the way that God is is re- reveals Himself in the Old Testament, yeah. which I don't really understand that one. I'll be honest with you, because yeah. if you read the New Testament, you have Jesus talking about eternal punishment and weeping and gnashing of teeth yeah. and, and read Revelation and he's coming back with a sword in his mouth to kill his enemies with the breath of his mouth. So I, yeah. I don't really understand the confusion between the two because I think we see Jesus driving out the temple. I mean, there's, there's all, yeah, there was a fierce, severe side to Jesus that mm-hmm. doesn't you know, contradict anything in the Old Testament, but that, that can be an issue. And, and also I think morally people are just not willing to accept the biblical ethics anymore. And so they have to find a different way. So I think it could be a mixture of some of those. It can be, you know, all of that. Mm. But um, that's just what I've observed as people kind of drift off. Yeah. And as you described that, I thought thought of this idea where God, even in the Old Testament, he's rebuking his people for constantly for their idolatry, their unfaithfulness to him, Even, even at times where they're Making sacrifices and doing all the right things, and, yeah. and you know, playing the part. Yeah. Uh, and idolatry is when, when we try to make a god in our image. And I almost get the sense that even among the professing uh, realm of Christendom today, really this desire to conform God mm. into a cultural image that's that's acceptable to some of the most sinful inclinations of our own heart. And I recently heard a quote from. Uh, Lauren Daigle, she's she's an artist that most of us have been blessed by a lot of her songs. Yeah, she's yeah. incredibly talented. But I think what it exposed to me is that there's a lot of pressure out there, even for pastors, for leaders, for people with, of influence within the Christian sphere. Um, and she spoke, she spoke, in fact, I, I just want to read it so I don't misquote her. Mm-hmm. She said, we have the hope of eternity and the good news of the gospel. I mean, that's a beautiful statement. Yeah, it's, yeah. The, it's 100% the yeah. truth. And then, and then she says, we aren't, those who bring a message that divides. We're bringing a message that reminds people of their worth and their value. They have something only God can fulfill. And that was pretty much it. End of statement. Mm-hmm. Now, those statements aren't necessarily completely false, but they're, they're incomplete. Yeah. Uh, there's this idea that 
God exists to show me my value, to fulfill my destiny, to to make sure I know my plan and my purpose yeah. for life. And and we don't want to we don't want to divide. We don't right. want to bring anything that that people might be offended by because our nice Jesus just wants everyone to get along. Yeah. And yeah. and like you said, when I read the Bible, that's that's not the Jesus no, I see. Yeah. He wants people to be united around the truth. That's right. But, but he, he came also to said divide I, families. He said that's right. Like, I mean, goodness. So yeah. this this form of sort of cultural idolatry. How do you think that feeds into the deconstruction movement and the yeah. attraction of it for, I mean, especially for the younger people where they're, yeah. where they're saying, oh, I have doubts, and all of a sudden that's cool. Yes, and, and they, get, they get praise, they get, yeah, that's a good point. So where are they going? Yeah. Um, you, you talked to me earlier about the toxicity of mm-hmm. what's out there. When people start to research a subject. Yeah, yeah. So this is a very interesting question because if you think about the intersection between deconstruction and this kind of nice non-divisive kind of thing, it's really relativism is where they where they both meet. So basically the idea that when it comes to religion and morality, truth is really just a matter of opinion. Mm. And you know, that's the dominant worldview right now. In fact, I would say that most people don't walk around as if that's the way things are when it comes to the banking system or medicine <laughs> or science or you know something like that. But when it comes to religion and then morality, what we should and shouldn't do, those things have really been put into the opinion or preference category, like yes. along with your favorite dessert or maybe your favorite color or something like that. And that's what I see in the deconstruction movement. And so this is something I, that I'm really passionate about right now because I've just written a whole book on this. And you, you know, we talked about the toxicity because I had to spend days on end in that hashtag. And it's, it's a dark place, it really is. And so my co-author and I, Tim Barnett, um, what we really realized is that, first of all, people are defining deconstruction in all sorts of different ways. So you might have a kid come home from summer camp and be like, yeah, I'm deconstructing my faith. And I always tell people, don't panic, because he might just mean, I'm really challenged to make sure that what I believe is true, that it, that what my parents taught me reflects scripture and mm. reflects reality. And if that's what he means, that's wonderful. Like every kid should do that, and we should encourage that and give space for that. But our advice in the book is to maybe encourage people to use a different word if that's what they're mm-hmm. doing, because that's not what's happening no. as in the deconstruction hashtag, which is really where deconstruction is manifesting in cultures, is online. Mm-hmm. And here's why, and this is, this is what we're trying to help people understand in the book, is that deconstruction is not a truth quest. It's not the pursuit of truth, like it or not. It's people are not, and they will tell you this. I mean, we have quotes all throughout the book. They're not assessing their theological beliefs based on what's correct or incorrect, true or false. They're assessing their theological beliefs based on what they internally feel is helpful or harmful, toxic or healthy, leading them toward wholeness or not, oppressive or liberating. These are the words that you'll hear but they're not assessing that based on what's true. And so that's why when someone in deconstruction, like I always help people understand this. Have you ever gone online and you've put a Bible verse and somebody comes on and calls you toxic and you're like, what just happened? That's because they're not interacting. They don't believe that you can know what's true about religion. So when the Christian comes along saying things like, you're a sinner, you need to get saved. Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. There's a place called hell. They're not even asking the question, is that true? They don't think that can be known mm-hmm. because of the relativism that's where this intersects. So they're just thinking, why would you be saying that? 
So the assumption is that the church is just trying to control people with fear. In fact, you see this all the time. The church invented the doctrine of hell to control people with fear. Um, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is abusive. You just see these claims that are moral claims. They're not interacting with whether or not it's true. And I think we really do back this up in the book that that's the primary expression of deconstruction is it's not a truth quest. It's a postmodern process of assessing theological beliefs, not using scripture as a standard, not using even objective truth as a standard. It's using your own feelings as the standard. And while a deconstructionist might not word it that way, um, everything that they say and do agrees with that. This is why so many people, like I've experienced Christian families who have adult kids who have deconstructed and then cut them off and even sent a no contact letter. That's not because they just disagree with your theology. It's because they think you are a toxic person because of what you believe. And that's what we're trying to help people understand. But that intersection of deconstruction and that kind of nice Jesus thing is relativism. It's the idea that truth is relative to your experience, your context, your feelings, your ethnic background, your culture, your period in history, your age, whatever it might be. It's, It's amazing that people really want truth about God to be subjective but they want their own truth to be objective. <laughs> Isn't that right. kind of ironic? I right. Mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. Even the way they approach sexuality, it, they approach it as if it's objective, that you know, the cultural sexual ethic or ideas of gender are correct. And if you oppose that, you are intolerant, you're a bigot, you're all these things. But yet they, they would deny that objective morality exists. It's so self-contradictory. And it's really dangerous, too. I mean, you, you, you referenced this earlier in a previous conversation, but that sometimes Satan makes the lie feel like freedom. Yeah. Where, where people feel like they're not confused because they're, they're discovering themselves mm-hmm. and they're, they're finally breaking free from the, the chains of religion and, and, you know, this oppressive idea of God. But they're in, they end up in more bondage and more confusion mm-hmm. in, at the end. There's almost this attraction. I, I really like this. I, I just wanted to read this. It's from uh, one, of, one of your books, uh, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, which is phenomenal, really practical guidance for the, for, for the Christian today. But you listed seven things that Satan attempts to do to really like just detract people from God's truth. You mentioned question what God actually said, uh, then twist what God said, and then paint God like some mean bully in the sky who uses fear tactics to keep you from being your true self. Mm-hmm. Um, then persuade you to trust yourself more than God and his word. Uh, catapult your life into darkness and chaos. Convince yourself that darkness and chaos is actually good. Mm-hmm. And then rinse, cycle, and repeat. Yeah. Uh, h- how do you see that really? If, if you could kind of put your thumb on it in today's culture, in today's church, what would the what would the warning be for mm. for people out there who maybe on one side they're the people who are asking questions and yeah. looking out there maybe on the other side they're the the pastors the leaders who yeah. maybe they they believe the right things but they don't know how to defend it they don't know how to engage in conversation with people who are honestly seeking yeah. and so they kind of they're kind of closing their their gates off to that what would be the a good strategy forward yeah well i think the the most important thing is to pursue truth and Know the real thing. I, I give a talk when I, when I give this talk. hope this doesn't give too much away. Um, but I, I show a picture of my daughter. And at the end of the talk, I show a different picture of my daughter. Only what the audience doesn't know is it's not her. It's a different little girl that looks just like her. Oh, wow. And they never pick it up. They never, you know, I'll, I'll even say, how many of you know that this is actually not the same person? And 
if anybody raises their hand, it's because they've heard the talk before, you know? <laughs> and yet I tell them, I say, my, if any of my family were here, if my husband were here or my mom, they would have taken one look and been like, who's that? It wouldn't have even been on their radar to be tricked because they know the real thing so well. And so I would say know the real thing, but it's interesting in those first three, that, that was the, the tactic of the serpent in the garden. Yeah. Question what God did, did God really say, right? That was his first question to Eve. And then twist what God said. That's, that's what he did. Uh, well, he contradicted it first, yeah. where he said, you will not surely die. And then he mixes a little bit of truth with it. And third one, well, he knows you'll just, he knows you'll be like him, knowing good from And that was actually true. Because yeah. we know later God was like, yeah, another like us, knowing good from evil. But God knew that that wasn't what was good for them. Yeah. And so that's when, you know, paint God like a mean bully in the sky. It's yeah. like, oh, he's holding out on you. He knows you're going to be like him. He doesn't want that for you. So, you know, questioning God's motives. And so it's the oldest trick in the book. Yeah. And and it's still, it's, you know, the enemy has not changed his yeah tactics. He's changed his language a little bit. He, he speaks on it in a different way, but it's it's the same tactics. And so I think just knowing the word to be aware of like, oh, this is how deception operates and knowing the real thing and why you think it's the real thing. That's the other thing we got to add for this current culture. Because yeah. I think when I was a little girl, it, would, it was enough to know what I believed. Um, we didn't have social media yet. We didn't have all of this endless amount of information coming into our homes all the time. And so now I think with kids especially, they need to know why they believe Jesus raised from the dead, why the Bible is his word, why we can trust it. How do we know we have the right books? How was it copied? Are there mistakes in it? These are valid questions that have robust answers, but they, it takes a little bit of digging. Sure. You know, it's not, you're not going to just have a little 20 second TikTok video answer those <laughs> yeah. things for you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which your book, uh, Another Gospel, really does a great job at unpacking a lot of that research. When we, when we look at Satan's strategies, as you mentioned, it's like, it should be clear that if there's an attempt to minimize the reality of sin and, and then go forth to minimize the potential eternal consequences of rejecting the truth of the of the gospel, that that is coming from yeah. Satan. Now, that that should be clear, but it's so deceptive. That today we've been engaged. Um, we've seen it here, even in St. Joseph, Missouri, right, the heart of the country. We have an open and affirming church. The pastor has, has a husband, and I use that term lightly. I mean, not in God's eyes, but you know, if if we even open our mouths about God's word, we we don't affirm the homosexual lifestyle but we love and receive the person as, as Christ would in hopes of their repentance and their transformation and their forgiveness. You know, all of a sudden it's like, we're just attacked from, mm -hmm. from, <laughs> uh, from kingdom come. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's relentless yeah. and it's militant and, yeah. and it's this, they so badly want there to not be any reality of hell and not be any reality that what I feel and what I want could be wrong. Mm -hmm. This erase, erasing of hell, I mean, you talk about that quite extensively. The realities of eternal judgment um, being, being wiped off the books. What do you think that's rooted in? Mm. Why, why is that such a, a push today to just want to erase the reality of eternity and eternity apart from Christ? Well, I think, you know, if we're really honest, hell is a horrifying thought. And I think it's rightly incomprehensible to us. And I think that, I mean, in a way, I understand the knee-jerk reaction or the impetus to say, this can't be, sure. right? Because it's it's the most horrifying thing you can imagine. Um, but I think that when people just stop there, 
Because, I mean, think about a world without punishment of sin. Well, then heaven's just hell, right? Yeah. So really, I love the way Josh Butler puts it in, in his book. Um, I quote it, I think, in another gospel. Mm-hmm. Whereas, really, hell should be viewed as a quarantine, yeah. right? I mean, yes, there's punishment, yes. Um, it's void of God's goodness and love. You know, I think people wrongly say that hell is separation from God. It's actually not. It's separation from his goodness and his love and anything good that comes from him. But people will be aware of what they've done. Mm-hmm. And that means you have to have like some connection there. Um, but I, I think that investigating really more about the nature of hell, because I think I had a very one-dimensional view of hell when I was a little kid. I, I mentioned the traveling play that came to my church and it was like just very, you know, literal flames. Everything's, you know, just really one dimensional. Heaven didn't look very great. I mean, it was like, you know, metallic (laughs) curtains made of tinfoil. I'm like, I don't want to go there either. Um, So I think there's this existential crisis people have with it. But if we really engage with it, I think, and I I talk about this in the book too, I think a good case can be made for levels of punishment in hell because there's different punishments in the Old Testament. There's different rewards and not everybody's going to have the same experience in heaven. I don't think everyone's going to have the same experience in hell. And this is the thing uh, I think about too. I have, you know, close people close to me who are unsaved. And I've thought about if they died today, like, how am I going to handle that existentially? Mm. Like, where are they? And ultimately, what I think about is, I think to, to even begin to understand the reality of how we have to understand the goodness and justice of God. Amen. Because whoever that person is in my life, and no matter what happened with yeah. their soul, I can trust the perfect just judge to do what is right with mm-hmm. them. He's not going to do anything unfair. He's not, it's not like the play where people were like, I didn't know, I never heard the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not gonna be like that. People willfully turn from Christ. And at some point, God, because he's good and just, has to quarantine that off so that he can keep his promise to wipe away every tear from every eye. And I think when we really think it all the way through like that, it becomes a little bit less existentially horrifying. But it is a horrifying thought, and it's supposed to be, it should be. Um, And that doesn't mean we're using fear to save people. Mm-hmm. We get we, we trust in Christ because we love him and we want to be adopted in his family. We want to receive the gift of grace that he's offered to us to cleanse our sin. Um, but the reality of hell is there too. But I think there comes a point when you have to take your hands off. You're not God. I'm not God. I don't have that level of intellect, that level of justice, that level of perfect rightness in absolutely everything I do to know. And so that's where I think faith comes in because it's not a blind leap, but it's like, if I'm trusting God for my salvation, that means I trust his character. I trust who he is to deal rightly with every person. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think we, sometimes we neglect to see the the full story of God, right? It's it's like um, people hear the word hell and all of a sudden it's, God is mean, he hates bad people, yeah. and he just wants, he can't wait to crush them, yeah. you know, yeah, for eternity. Yeah, he's excited, like some yeah. masochist. Or, yeah. And interestingly, this, in this, we see this in the deconstruction hashtag all the time, where people will actually celebrate when they've finally been able to let go of the doctrine of hell. And they'll make an announcement like, I finally am there, I, I've let it go. And just hordes of people will come on, congratulations, welcome to freedom. And it's so sad. It's heartbreaking to see because you see the, you see how difficult it is for someone to let go. And I wonder, I don't think that's just because it was ingrained. I think mm. it's because deep down they know that mm. it's true. We, we have a hard time letting go of it because if we let go of that, we let go of true justice. We let go of love. We let go of a lot of things. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons it's so hard for people to let go of. Yeah, yeah I agree. It's, uh, it's, 
everyone, people, people, I, I challenge a church this with frequently with this thought of like, I don't know anyone who doesn't want justice when it applies to the right. wrongs that they faced. Exactly. And, and to, to know that um, at the end, when everything is clear and everything is seen and the perfect justice of God is delivered and the perfect kingdom of God, you know, is established, there's not going to be a single soul that is going to say, you know, God, God, you're wrong. You know, right, yeah. uh, everyone's going to understand the, That's right. with clarity, the beauty of his justice and goodness. Well, look at cancel culture. Like you talking about people don't like God's wrath. They don't like hell, but they will absolutely end someone's existence, dox them, all these. Yeah. I mean, the whole culture is like, what? It's so confusing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, maybe uh, maybe just one more topic of thought before we uh, conclude our conversation. I think the term woke culture has uh, it's certainly been used a lot mm-hmm. uh, recently, but it, ref- it really is a, a direction that... Um, that is being completely embraced. It's almost like a counter gospel, yeah. like for for the for the um, for the atheist or the agnostic or the or the godless to, to put their trust in these these answers, these um, uh, these theories that exist, um, and and we see that a lot of pastors, church leaders, seem to be really allured and tempted by. I think what Paul would say are the base base principles of the world and the philosophies yeah. of men. Yeah. Uh, that are coming and they're tr- they're adopting some of these ideas, mm-hmm. and then stamping Jesus and the gospel over it. Yeah. What's the danger of that? Mm. And and how do we really come back to a faithfulness uh, to God's word and to the gospel? Oh, this is such a good question because I think when we first saw you know wokeness, I, I think it's actually a pretty good word yeah. because if you use the word critical theory, you know that technically referred to a legal theory that goes back to. Uh, you know, I, I don't know the entire history of it. And then you have thrown that flowing out like crit, uh, critical race theory, critical queer theory, all these, you know, and, and those are very technical terms. But how it's in the wild is what we call wokeness, right? It's it's all of that kind of mixed together in a contemporary sense. And Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer call it contemporary critical theory, just a new phrase. Um, but but here's the danger. I, I understand the, the impetus that some churches had uh, at a certain point because they thought that this would only apply to race, mm. right? Because I think we've all seen the injustices of sure. this country and we hate it and we want to make it right and nobody knows how to make it right. Yeah. And so I think, you know, in comes this idea of, oh, we can do these things. And, but the problem is, is that wokeness, first of all, it, it's wrong when it relates to race because it pits people against each other and that's not the gospel. It, it organizes people into these categories of oppression. So, you know, intersectionality is a huge part of it where whatever markers of oppression you can claim, like I'm female, so I can claim a little bit more oppression than you, but we're both white, so we can't claim as much oppression as someone else. Yeah. And, you know, on that, and so however many intersections of these oppressive categories you can claim, the more moral authority you have to speak on these issues, which is relativism. That's, again, that's preference and opinion, not based on objective truth. And then the view of justice is not biblical. But justice is one of God's attributes. Mm-hmm. It starts with him, right? So an injustice, we can't even think about how that would play out socially yeah. until we know that his righteousness, his perfect righteousness is justice. Mm-hmm. And um, But that's not how the world and how wokeness defines justice. Justice in woke culture is equal outcome. And this is the danger. Because even if you just kept it with race, you, you tried, you can't. 
because wokeness as a whole animal, it's all the different categories. So you cannot separate critical race theory from crit critical queer theory. They are together because they're different categories of oppression. So my big concern is when I saw some of these more biblically faithful churches start taking on woke language as it would relate to race, Many of us were saying, you can't keep it in the race. It's going to go into LGBTQ conversation. It's going to go into all, then it's going to go into gender. You're going to see complementarianism, which is the view that men and women are created equal in value and worth, but different in their roles. You're going to start seeing that viewed as not just a theological position, but an oppression. Yes. And that's because of wokeness. And so um, based on that definition of justice, a church that might hold that position, I hold that position. And I'm told I'm self-oppressed. Yeah. Rather than, oh, I've searched the scriptures and this is my view, yeah. I'm, I've got internalized oppression that I need to work through now because I'm being oppressed by you. Mm -hmm. How is that the gospel, right? Yeah. It's, it's completely... It's it, different it lens. It fuels competition. It fuels um, disunity. And unity, by the way, is not the goal of wokeness. Uh, you know, critical theory and wokeness, that's not the goal. In fact, they'll say unity is just what nervous white people talk about, <laughs> you know? But the goal of Jesus was unity around the truth, as yeah. you said, around the gospel, to where all of those categories are broken down in yeah. Christ. There's no slave, no free. There's, there's socioeconomic category in there. There's ethnic category in there. There's uh, gender category in there. We're all one in Christ. And it's a beautiful message that wokeness is just eroding in the church. Do you think part of this has to do with the desire to either A, like please men, or maybe a general ignorance of, of what the Word of God says, even among church leaders today? I think it's both of those plus a healthy dose of white guilt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's a... It's, it, biblical faithfulness now today is, I mean, it's always been just important yeah. from the reformers fighting for uh, biblical faithfulness um, all the way to the, the battles we're fighting today. So thank you for your ministry and uh, look forward to um, uh, here, the new book that's coming out. Do you have a release date for that? Yeah, it's actually coming out January 30th or 31st, okay. but you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And I just want to encourage everybody to do that because it's our heart that this will be like the resource for the church on this topic. So it's called The Deconstruction of Christianity. Fantastic. And you can find that on Amazon and pre-order it now. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for your time today. It's a joy talking with you. Oh, me too. Thanks. Thanks.